0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Do you ever feel like the world is spinning out of control? Amidst the world's chaos and growing opposition to our faith, economic hardship, and overwhelming challenges, we can find inspiration from the story of Elijah in 1 Kings. Despite facing an angry king, severe drought, massive opposition, and depression, Elijah lived a powerful and impactful life for God. Join us for our series, Elijah, as we learn how the same God Elijah served can use us to live a life of impact for his kingdom.
1: to dive right in today okay there's 40 verses in this chapter i was allotted two minutes per verse to preach for this so just kidding <laughs> elijah asked the question it's my question to you as well today how long how long will you waver between two different opinions if the lord is god follow him but if idols if baal follow them How long will you waver? I'm concerned today that we are people that are wavering or limping between two religious opinions, or maybe many more. Instead of wholehearted worship of God in Christ Jesus and steadfast devotion to him, today we are functionally living as idol worshipers, worshiping false gods. Now you you might take a little exception at that. For just a moment this morning, you might, you might feel a little called out, maybe a little like I'm pointing the finger right at you. You might, you might say, oh, I'm not an idol worshiper. I don't bow down to some statue of wood or gold. I don't, I don't chant and make sacrifices and burn incense in front of a, a, a little trinket in my home or a little shrine, looking at some strange god like they might do somewhere in, in Southeast Asia or India or other parts of the world. I'm not an idol worshiper. But the fact is that we in the United States are just as much, if not even more so, idol worshipers as anyone else in the world. Uh, Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, describes idols this way. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give what only God can give counterfeit god he says is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it your life would feel hardly worth living an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts if i have that then i'll feel my life has meaning then i'll know i have value then i'll feel significant and secure Based on that definition alone, I think it's fair of me to say to all of us that we are idol worshipers. There there are things that you and I give our hearts to more than God. There are things that we would be terrified of that if we lost, we we would be without, that our lives would be incomplete or without meaning. In fact, it's John Calvin who said that our hearts are perpetual idol factories, So, you're wavering between two opinions. You worship God. I know you, I know many of you well. But let's be honest, we're worshiping idols as well. So, Elijah's question is my question this morning How long will you go wavering between two opinions? You might say, well, it's not that bad. Don't be so harsh, right? Like, it's not like if I'm doing, if I'm worshiping some of these things or, or giving myself to them, it's not like I'm doing any real damage in the world. I, I just want to get ahead. I just want to succeed. I, I just want to be loved. I, I just want financial security and comfort. I just want to be noticed. Is that so bad? And while that might be the excuse that you and I would lay out there, Our hearts are still worshiping false gods. We're idol worshipers. So how long will you waver? How long will you limp between two opinions? I'm picking up Elijah's question this morning in 1 Kings 18. We're in this five-week series on the life of Elijah, a man just like you and me, a man of faith, who trusted God. And in 1 Kings 18, we get the pinnacle moment of Elijah's career as a prophet. I mean, this is the greatest showdown, the biggest event of his ministry, and it exposes something about you and I. So I'm going to let Elijah stand as a prophet, speaking God's word to us to help evaluate and and to uh, display our hearts so that we can truly see what is real where true power is, who truly God is, and where we can see the places that we have been believing lies and falsehood. Sometimes we need help to help us see how bad one decision can be versus another. And so I want to do a little bit of a comparative analysis this morning or a theology, if you will, of idolatry. What's going on in who we worship? And how long will we go between two things. How long will we waver? Uh, It's up to you this morning to read the entirety of 1 Kings 18. Uh, That's your homework for this uh, this Sunday morning. Um, Mary's read a critical part of it today, but I'm going to take us in a flyby of this passage and retell uh, the story this morning. And I want to challenge us, challenge us to ask the question of our hearts. Why are you worshiping false gods What are those false gods and how long will you waver between the two? So to do that, let me compare. Let me make a contrast here. And let me answer the question, what impact is idolatry, worshiping false gods, having in our hearts? I'm going to share three things about the impact that idolatry has in our lives and then I'm going to show you three things about Christ this morning. So yes, I did take a three-point message and make it six points. You're welcome. I love you that much. First of all, Idols corrupt our lives. Let's just own it, right? Idols corrupt our lives. They, they break us down. Now, at the beginning of chapter 18 and verses 1 through 19 there, we get this prelude account of Elijah and Ahab and another a man named Obadiah who was in charge of the palace. But I want to just focus in and tell you about Ahab and what's going on in his life, right? Ahab is the king of Israel, the northern kingdom at this point. Elijah had three years earlier, if you just flip over to chapter 17, verse 1, you would see there, Elijah comes to Ahab and says, as the Lord God of Israel lives, in whose presence I stand, there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. This is just God's judgment on the nation of Israel for worshiping idols. So Elijah said that to Ahab and said, not a drop of rain, no dew, except by the word of the Lord. God is judging Israel for their wickedness. And Ahab specifically, God is, God is finger pointed at Ahab specifically for his betrayal of the Lord. He had done more than any of the other kings prior to him to incense the Lord to anger. And he, he married a woman that brought in Baal worship, idolatry, sexual immorality into the kingdom of Israel. And they just integrated it all and said, this is normative and fine and good and this is how you should roll. So the the responsibility really for Israel's dire situation at this moment, three plus years of no rain, complete drought, famine, no grass, I mean nothing, that's all on the shoulders of Ahab. You'd think a man would get it and go, Oh, I need to repent. I need to drop to my knees and cry out to God for his grace. But repentance doesn't come easy when you're worshiping a lie. Repentance doesn't come easy when you're living for idols. And so Ahab's whole life is corrupted. So in these first 19 verses, we see how corrupt it is. Here's a few of the highlights. First of all, Ahab's priorities are corrupted. He's he's running around trying to find, uh, this is in verse five, he's running around trying to find grass so we can keep the horses and the mules alive. That's really to keep his military forces steady. Built up, occupied, so they can push back Assyrian invaders. His his focus is on winning wars. Instead of caring for the people entrusted to him, instead of humbling his heart before the Lord and seeking the mercy and grace of God, he just wants to build up his army so that he can have military strength. His priorities are all corrupted. Furthermore, his values are corrupted. He endorses the prophet of the Lord killing hit squad that his wife Jezebel has dispatched in the nation. In verse 4 there, it says that Jezebel slaughtered the Lord's prophets. This other man Obadiah in there, he was, he was responsible for actually protecting a hundred of these prophets and hiding 50 of them in one cave and 50 of them in another cave. But Jezebel had sent out her, her goon squad to wipe out the prophets of the Lord in the land. And the king, Ahab, validates this. He's totally fine with it. He endorses it. He doesn't hold back his wife. He just says, yeah, let's go for it. His values, the things he worships, they're completely corrupted. Furthermore, his perspective is corrupted. Towards the end of uh, these verses here, towards the end in verse 16 and 17, Elijah and Ahab finally meet up. They've been on a, on a deep search around the land for Elijah because he's the one who, in their minds, brought this trouble on Israel. He's the one who's responsible for it in Ahab's mind. And they finally connect. Ahab and Elijah finally meet up. And when he sees Elijah, verses 17, he says to Elijah, is that you, Elijah? Is that you, the one ruining Israel? Are you the troubler of Israel, Elijah? That's, is that who I see there? And, and so he... His perspective is all corrupted. He's blaming outright Elijah, even though the scriptures and the Lord clearly places the responsibility on Ahab. He doesn't see things rightly. In fact, Elijah says to him in verse 18, I have not ruined Israel, but you and your father's family have, because you abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. You've been worshiping false gods, not the one true God. So, catch this. In Ahab's idolatry, his priorities, his values, his perspective, they're all corrupt. He's believing and embracing a lie, and everything in his life and leadership is impacted by his worship and devotion to a false God in idolatry. And that's my point. Idolatry corrupts everything in us. You aren't sane worshiping idols. You may remember a few years back, the, the college admissions scandal. There was several um, several wealthy people, semi-famous in some way or another. You may remember Lori Laughlin from Full House, or one calls a heart, fame. They were convicted of, falsely, uh, or, uh, of falsifying documents, cheating on te- standardized tests, uh, even bribing administrators to get their children into the elite colleges of their choice. An NBC article reported that, that some of the parents spent somewhere between... $200,000 and $6.5 million to get their kids into the college they wanted to and kind of skirt the line, as it were. It was a federal crime. You, know, you might say, well, that's a white-collar crime. You know, they didn't really do anything deeply wicked or violent. But I bring that out to show you that, that they were worshiping idols. Their, their hearts were corrupted by what they were pursuing They wanted the reputation of status and prestige that comes along with going to these elite universities. And so they were willing to cheat the game and cheat and to gain the system in order to get their advantage. They were going to get what their hearts wanted and their perspective, their pursuits, all of it was corrupted. That's what idol worship does in our lives. It it corrupts us and brings us to do selfish, shameful, insidious things. Friends, if if you worship money your life will be corrupted by greed. And the impulse will always be there to have more, to always be accumulating, to get and to get and to get and to get. And you will never be satisfied. Or if you worship power in your life, your life will be corrupted with ambition. You'll be climbing, stepping on people, people you may even say you love about and care for, stepping on whoever stands in your way to get up the ladder and to accomplish your dreams. If you worship success, your life will be corrupted by a drive to always achieve. Perhaps you'll become a workaholic, sacrificing the very things that are most precious and the deepest priorities that you would say you have for productivity, for another promotion, for another raise, just to get up there. Friends, idol worship corrupts everything. It eats away at our hearts and our lives. But not only that, idol worship exhausts our lives. This is the second impact that it has. And here we get into the the meat of this story. Elijah and Ahab are going to have a standoff. This is is so incredible. So Elijah tells Ahab, uh, this is in verses uh, 20 down to 30. Elijah tells Ahab, listen, I haven't ruined this nation. Don't, Don't point your finger at me. Ahab, you have. You are the one who has abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. So here's what we're going to do, Elijah proposes. You go get the 450 prophets of Baal, get the 400 prophets of Asherah and get them all over to Mount Carmel. We're just going to we're going to settle this once and for all. We're going to decide it here and now. And so, sure enough, Ahab tells everyone, verse 20, Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at the Mount at Mount Carmel. He gets everybody together, 450 prophets of Baal, Elijah, the people of Israel, they're all there. And Elijah lays out the issue. This is verse 21. Elijah approached all the people and said, what I've asked, what he's asked, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. The people just stand there in silence. They don't even say a word. They're just like, you decide. Like You tell us what to do here. So so Elijah says, okay, let's, let's figure out who the true, living, real God is. And this is what he proposes. We'll get two bowls. We'll have two sacrifices. The prophets of Baal, they can choose their bowl first and cut it up, put it on wood, but don't light the fire. That's, that's the premise. You do not light the fire, just get it all ready. And Elijah will do the same as well. He'll get his bowl. He'll carve it up, put it on the wood, but not, he won't light it either. And then each side gets to call out to their God for a season of time. Each God will pray out to the name of their God, call their God to, to do something. And this is what verse 24 says. Then you call on the name of your God. I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers with fire, he is God. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty clear throwdown, right? Whoever, whoever lights up this altar that we haven't lit with fire from heaven, well, that's obvious then. We know who the true, real God is. I'd like to see that. So they all agree. The people are like, yep. Ahab's like, sure, let's do it. Elijah says, okay, great. You guys go first. Now here's where you just have to understand this. Like, the odds are hugely stacked against Elijah. Now we as Christians might know, oh, Elijah's got this in the bag. But, but for the people of that day and time, they're hearing Elijah and seeing what he's doing. And they're like, this guy is nuts. He doesn't stand a chance. Here's why, okay. Ahab has 450 prophets of Baal there against one prophet of the Lord, right? So if you're crying out to a God, you want to have a lot of voices. You want to have a a multitude of people shouting out. God's here better when there are more people crying out to you than just one. So, right, so the, the odds are stacked that way. But not only that, Baal, the God Baal, he is literally the storm God, right? His thing is to drop lightning or fire from heaven. Like, that's what he does. People cry out and pray, Baal drops his lightning, and then rain comes. And the ground is um, it, it's replenished, it's stocked, everything is great, it's, it's fertile, and everything grows. And so that's how the people know that, in their minds, Baal is God. So, so this is no contest, right? If, if the prophets of Baal get to go first, well, that's what Baal does. He drops lightning, this is done, it's over. And so here's what happens, verse 26. They took the bull Elijah gave them they prepared it they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon saying Baal answer us but there was no sound no one answered and they danced around the altar that they had made okay get this 3 plus hours in the morning if you just say let's say this thing started at 9 3 plus hours of crying out to Baal no answer 450 prophets shouting out, calling out, crying out. No, no response. The word here, danced in the CSB, is, is actually not the right word. It's better translated limped or wavered. Can you imagine three hours of crying out, shouting out, and dancing around, and like, you'd get a little tired, wouldn't you? I know some of you are super intense in your uh, CrossFit and cardiovascular exercises, and you could just, you can go marathons. You're going to wear out at some point. That's what's happening. So they're getting tired. Elijah, he wants to help, right? Okay, he's he's a good-hearted prophet. So he he begins to encourage them. Actually, he, he wants to mock them, right? He knows what's going on. Verse 27 says, at noon, the midway point, Elijah mocks them. And he says, oh, shout loudly, for he is a god. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he has wandered away. Maybe he's on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping and will wake up. So Elijah's just like, hey, shout louder, get it going. The, the CSB here that I'm reading from this morning, this translation, it sanitizes it a little bit. Uh, actually, Elijah suggests that Baal is in the bathroom. You know, like, if you're on the toilet and somebody knocks, you don't answer. That's awkward, right? You just think, maybe that's what's going on with Baal right now. Don't answer. He's like, I'm, I'm occupied. Maybe is taking a nap. He needs to be awakened. So look what happens in verse 29. All afternoon they kept raving and raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no sound. No one answered. No one paid attention. That's what idol worship is, friends. Exhausting. It takes everything you have, all your energy, all your focus, all your time, all your dedication, all your heart to gain the acknowledgement that you desire or need from the idols that you're worshiping. Think about this. The idols that you worship, they're never satisfied. Think about worshiping money. Do you ever get enough? I mean, after how many billions do you like, okay, let's tap out, right? Like, I don't need any more. There's an insatiable hunger in our hearts for more and for more and for more. And that's why as we keep worshiping these false idols of our culture, like cash and celebrity and control, like they're never satisfied. They never give up the goods. We're always pursuing them for more. Or what about success? Think about that. Have you ever heard a successful person say, I've done enough? Like I'm satisfied. I've reached the pinnacle, and I'm good. No need to pursue anything more. I caught an interview from Tom Brady, the former Patriots quarterback, a few years ago, after he had won three Super Bowls. okay, That's pretty impressive in and of itself. But after winning three Super Bowls, he was asked in a 60 Minutes interview about being satisfied in life. And he said, there are times when I'm not the person I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, Brady says, I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27, he says. What else more is there for me? The interviewer says, well, what's the answer? It should break our hearts. Brady's answer, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Idol worship exhaust us, always pursuing, always working, always trying to appease and satisfy and earn the acceptance of the false god that you are worshiping. It will drain you and deplete you totally. You're always working like these prophets of Baal, always crying out and getting no answer. Friend, what are the idols that you're worshiping today? Do you see how exhausting they are to you in your life? Always taking, never giving. You may get a little hint of of a little pleasure here in the moment, but never fully satisfied and always wanting more. Idols corrupt us. Idols exhaust us. Thirdly, idols take our lives. This is just the bottom reality of it all. I skipped verse 28 here for us this morning. As Elijah's saying, you know, hey, maybe your God's on the toilet or he's, he's asleep or whatever. Verse 28 says, they shouted loudly and cut themselves with knives and spears according to their custom until blood gushed over them. You see what's going on here? The prophets of Baal are trying to get the storm god's attention, and he's not listening. Nothing's worse than working. So they show them, so like, oh, well, maybe it's just a matter of sincerity. Maybe he is not answering because we haven't really showed ourselves to be truly sincere and earnest in our worship. And so they start self-harming, cutting. I mean, they just want blood everywhere, knives and spears. And the thing that just jumps out of me on this page here, this text is the phrase, according to their custom." Like This is what they were taught and educated. This was their religion and what their religion had said to do. You want that God's attention? you got to shed your blood. That's what idol worship requires of us. The false gods of this world demand your life. It's their religion for you to spill your blood and to to attempt to satisfy and earn their acknowledgement. So if I could just say it bluntly, friends... The false gods that we are worshiping, they are killing us. There's no life that they're giving to you. They are killing us. Whether it's status or acceptance or approval, they want a sacrifice. And that sacrifice is you. It's your life. Idols always take. They never give. They always demand. They never supply. You will die trying to please the false gods of this world that you worship. Because they demand and take everything. The point is this, is that idolatry kills us. It kills us. But there's another way. I mean, Elijah asked the question, how long will you waver between two opinions? How long? How long will you keep on worshiping these false gods of success and celebrity and wealth and security How long will you keep looking into your phone hoping that it acknowledges you or that the people that are following you like or subscribe or whatever it is so that your status is elevated, so that you get a little ping in your heart and a little dopamine drip in your mind of being loved? How long? Now, I just want to do a comparative analysis here. That's my only goal. I want to let you see the two. If you want your idols, keep them. They will kill you. But I want to show you Jesus. Worshiping and follow Jesus Christ is absolutely unlike any idol worship at all. And here's where the other side of this comes. Where idols corrupt us, Christ dignifies us. He dignifies us. Keep going in the story here because we're not done with Elijah and what God does here. The pivot turns. Now it's Elijah's turn. Verse thirty. Elijah said to all the people, "He like, come in close. Pay attention here. Come near me. So the people approach him. Baal hasn't answered. He summons everyone, and he begins to rebuild something. Then he repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. This was maybe a legitimate place of worship and sacrifice to the Lord before the temple was built in Jerusalem. But it had been neglected. It had even been rejected and torn down. So Elijah takes 12 stones one representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God. And he rebuilds a place of worship to the Lord. And he's doing this very specifically, very intently. He repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down, verse 31, and he took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel will be your name. Elijah builds this, and the writer or the narrator of this story here in 1 Kings emphasizes the reality of their name, who they are. Your name is Israel. Elijah is just telling the people, don't forget who you are. You are seen. You are known. You are named by God. Where idols corrupt and make us nameless, faithless, or faceless, worthless nothings, Christ dignifies his people. Elijah wanted the people to see and to know that the Lord God is their God, their king, their shepherd, and that he knows them. God doesn't shame or belittle or strip dignity from those who worship him. In fact, he does the exact opposite. Christ Utterly dignifies and lifts up lowly human beings who have been corrupted by sin. Christ names us. He calls us His. I mean, think about the way that Jesus elevated and dignified the weakest and the lowliest of His culture and time. Shepherds, given the privilege of visiting the newly born incarnate Son of God in the manger in Bethlehem. Fishermen were called to be His disciples, and they were given identity identities as apostles and leaders of Jesus. Lepers who were outcast and unclean ceremonially were touched by Jesus and healed by him. Religious outsiders, Gentiles, pagans were healed and blessed and commended for their faith in Jesus. Women were encouraged to learn, to follow, to love, and to serve Jesus. Women, in fact, were the first ones to see and to proclaim that Jesus was alive. Christ brings dignity to his people. That's why the writer in Hebrews 2 can say, For the one who sanctifies, for the one who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. The false gods destroy everything. Jesus dignifies us. He says, You're my brother, my sister. If you desire true dignity and value and worth, Jesus gives it to everyone who follows and trusts in him. And where the, where the false gods, where the idols of this world exhaust us, Christ refreshes us. This story keeps going here. Christ frees us. He, he refreshes us. The contrast is so amazing between the worship of Baal and the worship of the Lord God. So Elijah continues to stack the deck against himself. He builds the altar, he sets wood upon it, he puts the bowl there, no fire, but then he, he lays around this trench, this, this big moat. He, he digs out, he has him dig out this four-gallon-deep pit, and he says, bring four big water pots and drench this thing. Just cover it with water. And he has to do it three times over. Now remember, it's in a drought season. Water is a scarce supply. And, and Elisha's like, no, not with my God. He completely soaks the altar. And, and by the way, there's, when you get wood wet, like it's not going to light. God is going to have to do it. And so he gets it all ready. And then he doesn't dance around the altar, doesn't chant, doesn't cut himself, doesn't get a whole host of folks singing aloud and, and trying to reach God. He just simply prays. Verse 36, at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and said, This is his prayer. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you're God in Israel and that I'm your servant. Let it be known today that at your word, I'm not making this up. Elijah's like, I I didn't do this on my own action. God, you directed me to do this. You directed me to say this. At your word, I have done all these things. And so he says, Answer me, Lord. Answer me, so that this people will know that you, the Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. No long, drawn-out, hours upon hours of, hours of crying out and pleading and chanting. No repetitious, exhausting, wearying charade of worship that leaves everyone limping around. No cutting and flagellation and extensive showmanship to get the attention of God. Elijah doesn't have to pretend that God's away or thinking it over. He knows God is alive. He knows that God hears. And so he simply prays simple words of faith and dependence on the Lord. Lord, do this because you told me to do it and so that everyone knows you're God. And that's what Jesus offers us, friends. Not the wearying yoke of idol worship that never refreshes us, never satisfies, never heals, never supports, but only exhausts. Jesus himself said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus Jesus Christ offers us True rest and refreshment in Him. Not like the idols that exhaust us. He says, I want to build you up. I want to strengthen you. I want to give you rest and soul repair. Jesus is not offering the overbearing nature of religion and religious performance. He says, my yoke. So there is a yoke. There is an obligation, a call for us to follow Him. But it isn't a heavy, exhausting yoke. It's easy. It's one that leads to rest. Christ dignifies us, and he refreshes us. And then most of all, Christ revives us. He makes us alive. So you ask the question, what happens when Elijah prays? the, The prophets of Baal, they got no answer. Does Elijah get an answer? And the word is absolutely yes. Verse 38, then the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Not natural lighting. lightning, it wasn't a storm and, you know, the lightning fell, the Lord's fire fell and it consumed everything and a miraculous, overwhelming, powerful display of the power and glory of God, he shows up and shows that he is true and real and for the people of Israel in that moment, the lights come on. Verse 39. When all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. I mean, this is the moment of revival. This is what every pastor hopes for and prays for. Up to this point, people were limping around, wavering, like, well, maybe Baal, maybe Asherah, maybe Jehovah, Yahweh, God, whoever it might be, we don't know, but we'll try everything we can. There was an ambivalence in their hearts. And yet, in that moment, God drops his fire, the prayer of Elijah, and makes alive everyone to the reality that he is the one true God. The Lord, he is God. And that's the contrast. The idols kill. They demand your blood. But the Lord brings his people back to life. The Lord is the one who gives life. Now, I know what you're thinking, right? You're saying, oh, wow, that's amazing. I mean, This story is an incredible story in the Bible. But that's, like, I need some kind of proof, right? Like maybe we should get a couple altars up here, get some prophets of Baal out there to come and, you know, maybe the prophets of money and do their thing. I'll pray. Well, you're like, that'll be the proof you want. Friend, you have a far greater display of God's power. There, there's a much more enormous and better display of his work for us in our lives. Instead of sacrificing a bowl to please a God, the Lord came and was sacrificed on the cross for our sins. Now here's the contrast. Jesus came down for us. God came himself on our behalf, went to Calvary for you and for me. And instead of us seeing fire fall from heaven today for God to show that he is God, God sent his son for us and he raised him to life again on the third day. He he imparted to all who believe and trust in him the power and the life of the Holy Spirit living within us. Jesus himself came, suffered, died, and then was raised. A man died and was raised to life again. Hear this claim, resurrected fully, bodily from the grave. If you want a miracle, it's Jesus. There he is, alive, and that's his promise for us. Whoever worships and follows Jesus Exclusively, you too will be raised to life again. Jesus takes people like you and me who worship false gods and, as the scripture says, are dead in our trespasses and sins, and he makes us alive together with him. That's the good news of Christ. He makes dead people alive, people who have worshipped false gods, people who have had their lives corrupted and exhausted and lost to idols. Jesus makes alive. And so he offers himself to everyone this morning. He says, do you realize your need? Do you see you've been worshiping idols, power, success, money, celebrity, whatever it is? Well, come to me, Jesus says. I'm alive. I'm I'm the living God. Worship me. Bring your need, bring your despair, bring your bondage. I will make you alive if you will trust and depend on me forever. He dignifies, refreshes, and revives us. Good news is, friend, the Lord is the only God who gives life. The Lord is the only God who gives life. So let me ask you seeing Jesus, Him crucified and raised for us, no other God will do that for you. How long will you go on wavering between two opinions? How long will you try and live having it both ways? Worshipping the false gods and idols of this day and time and culture and being ambivalent to Jesus Christ. How long will you go on trying to satisfy the false gods of comfort, cash, control, celebrity, thinking that they will give you life when all they do is take? If they're God, follow them. I won't hinder you. If the Lord God, Jesus Christ, is Lord and God, and he is alive, the only one, the only living God, follow him. Let today be the day you stop wavering around, quit serving the false gods and idols of this world, and let today be the day that we wholeheartedly commit ourselves to following Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we we have sung this morning saying we will bow our hearts and bend our knees and cast down our idols. But Lord, it's only your spirit that can do that in our hearts. And so we ask today that you would open our eyes and that you would help us to see that you are the living, true, only God. Jesus Christ has come for us and that he has lived and died and was raised to life again to show, to to secure, and to bring us into the hope of the promise of life with you forever. We acknowledge our idols, Lord. We love the things and the powers of this world far too much. But we ask that today, Lord, would be a day when We plant the flag in our hearts that we we cross the line and we say, "No no more wavering, no more limping around, no more giving our affections to the things of this world and these false, stupid, dead gods. We only want to live for you. Lord, work in us, strengthen us, and give us your spirit again to walk with you and to worship you in all of our lives. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.
0: Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org to introduce yourself today.